0: You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Sunday morning, uh, life groups, uh, the uh, community groups all over the place. A year ago, about this time, a little before this, uh, he had been an intern in our ministry and was ready to be our associate college pastor. And he was going to still be under the tutelage of of the great Austin Wadlow and continue to learn from him. Uh, But as you know, Austin, those of you who knew Austin, Austin left then. And so suddenly, Zach was thrust into this role of being our interim college pastor. And he has done a fantastic job for the last 14 months. So can we say thank you to Zach Cunningham tonight for that? Yeah, he's, he's preached at Overflow several times, he, he, he's led it all, he's done a great job, and uh, of course he won't preach anymore this semester, you know, next, semester, next week we got Jared, but if you're still in town, on Sunday, May the 27th, I think it is, the last Sunday of May, he's going to preach right here at First Denton on Sunday morning at 9.30 and 11 o'clock, so if you're in town be here that Sunday to hear him preach and to support him of course along with him and leading has been Rachel Havlick and Micah Templeton our interns so let's give them a hand as well those guys have done a great job and of course these guys are going to continue as uh, as Jared gets here and does that but I'm so thankful for these guys and the great job that they have done and uh, so you be sure and tell them that in person too when you get the chance sometime all right everybody got a piece of gum Everybody got it? All right, hold up. All right, take it and open it up. Don't put it in your mouth yet. But just smell it, all right? You know, just kind of. This, this is juicy fruit gum. This is my favorite gum in all the world, okay? So you smell it, it. just smells good. I had all this gum in my car all day today. So every time I got in there, man, I could just smell. All, the... all right, now put it in your mouth. Put it in your mouth. Just start chewing it up. You know, juicy fruit, they used to advertise it, a burst of juicy fruit flavor in every chew. It tastes pretty good, doesn't it? good stuff right now as you're chewing that gum get your Bible and open to the book of Galatians Galatians chapter number five okay you're chewing juicy fruit gum right now we're gonna talk about the fruit of the Spirit tonight okay the fruit of the Spirit so as you chew that gum as you think about how good it tastes and and the taste of it now I'm not gonna guarantee you that uh, the fruit flavor is gonna last until the end of the sermon okay I could say as soon as it's gone, the sermon will be gone. That may or may not be true. Probably won't be true. I'm taking mine out because I can't talk with gum in my mouth. But anyway, you keep it going and talk about, but we're going to talk about that at the end too. About how eventually the gum wears out. But what we're going to talk about today should never wear out. Because here in Galatians chapter 5, we find what's called the fruit of the Spirit. Now, I wanted to preach this tonight, and I wanted to talk to you about this passage tonight because many of you are getting ready to go home. For the summer, how many of you are going home for the summer? Let me see your hands, raise your hand up, hands down. How many of you are staying here in Denton for the summer? Okay, so that's about two-thirds and a third maybe. All right, now, many of you who are going home for the summer, now I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on this, you know your situation, but some of you are going back to a place where you don't have a lot of Christian friends. Maybe you didn't grow up going to church, and so maybe you don't have a a church back at home. And so you're going to go back to some of those old relationships and old friends, and you're going to be tempted in many ways. To sort of leave your relationship with God here. And you're going to miss your overflow family. You're going to miss your your community group and and the people that encourage you and and help you. And I want to say to you, hey, that's okay. You can do it. You can go and be an influence on the people who are there. And that's what we're going to talk about tonight. How do I do that? What should be in my life when I go back home so that hopefully I can be an influence on others. Now, some of you are going back to your churches at home, and and that's great, and you're going to have a great summer with that as well. But regardless of where you're going back to, I want you to go back with this passage in mind. Here's the things that need to be evident in my life this summer. Well, I'm away from Overflow. I'm away from my my friends that I have right here, so that I can continue to grow in my relationship with Jesus Christ. So when I come back in the fall, man, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to come back to Overflow. I'm ready to come back to what God has for me here and continue to do the things that He's called me to do. All right. So Galatians chapter five, we're going to be reading. We begin reading verse sixteen and read down through verse twenty-six. Now, he's going to list first of all some uh, acts of the sinful nature. So listen to those, but then we're going to get to the, to the fruit of the Spirit. Let's begin in verse 16, Galatians chapter 5. Here it says, But I say, Paul says, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. All right, As you go home this summer, you want to live the Christian life, but there's some things in our life that are going to keep us from doing the things you want to do. Verse 18. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evidence. And he lists about 14 of them here. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery. Enmity. Strife. Jealousy. Fits of anger. Rivalries. Dissensions. Divinations. Envy. Drunkenness. Orgies. Orgies. And things like these. I warn you, Paul says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So those are the things that keep us from being what God wants us to be. From living the kind of life that we want to live. But look at verse 22. But, Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's nine things. I want to challenge you. Memorize those nine things. Memorize those nine fruit of the Spirit. Say them out loud with me again. Let's go back uh, to verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is, say them together love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. And Paul says, Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now go back up to verse 22 and notice that it's singular. Notice Paul says, the fruit of the Spirit. He doesn't say fruits, he says fruit i think the reason is he says all nine of these things need to be evident in all of our lives the best way i can picture it is a is a bunch of grapes i meant to go get some grapes at kroger's and i forgot but you know you can just picture me holding a, a bunch of grapes here okay now, they're all together right but yet there's separate grapes all over that bunch well that's kind of like the fruit of the spirit there's nine of them but they all go together go back up to verse 19 again though and notice it's in the plural paul says the works of the flesh so those are all separate if you will But the fruit of the spirit is all together like a bunch of grapes And so as we go through these tonight, I want you to think all right I need to have all these things evident in my life All these things need to be produced in my life as I live my life as a Christian Now keep in mind the fruit of the spirit and the gifts of the spirit are a totally different thing Now we're not talking about gifts of the spirit tonight first corinthians romans Other places we find lists of these uh, gifts of the Spirit. Those are abilities that God gives us to use in serving Him in His church. That's not what He's talking about. Instead, He's talking about things, natural things within us, in a life that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. And there's the key. As we think through these tonight, we're going to go through, and we're not going to have time to talk about all nine of them. We're going to take about six of them and talk about them tonight. But just know, in order for you to produce these things in your life, you've got to have the power of the Holy Spirit In your life and by the way, you get the Holy Spirit When you get Jesus Christ, you get all of God at one time when you invite Christ to come into your life to be your Savior and Lord when the gospel becomes real in your life When you become a child of God and have that relationship with him The Holy Spirit of God comes in and empowers you to live the Christian life But without that power, you're not going to produce this fruit that we're talking about now, before my family and I came here to First Baptist Denton, I was at First Baptist Church in Pleasanton, Texas. Anybody know where Pleasanton, Texas is? Anybody? Oh, we got one. We got one more here, two over here. All right, Pleasanton is south of San Antonio, okay, about 30 miles south of San Antonio. And we were there in that church, and we lived in what was called a parsonage. Anybody ever heard of a parsonage, okay? Parsonage is a house that a church owns that the preacher lives in, all right, the pastor, or the parson, as they used to be called. So it was called a parsonage, but Anyway, that's all extra. That was for free. So anyway, we lived in this house, the church owned, and it was an old house. So it was kind of quirky, and it had little things in it. One of the quirks was it was the doorbell didn't work. I mean, you could push that thing all day, and it didn't ring. And after I'd been there a while, I kind of said, you know, I need my doorbell to work. And so I got to think, I, I got to get somebody to come over and, and get the doorbell working. So I, I looked up an uh, electrician's phone number, and I called the electrician, and he said, yeah, I'll come over, and never showed up. You know, doorbells are not real high priorities for electricians. They got other things that are better for them. And so nobody would come fix my, my doorbell. And then I met Ernest Moore. Now, Ernest Moore was a new member of our church. And I found out after Ernest got there that Ernest was a master electrician, retired, but a master electrician. So one Sunday I went to Ernest and said, hey, Ernest, you think you could come over and fix the doorbell at my house? It doesn't work. When somebody comes up, they can't ring the doorbell. He said, absolutely, pastor. I'll be glad to do that. And a couple of days later, he shows up kind survey of surveys the situation. He said, I'll be back in a few days to fix your doorbell. I'm like, all right. So he's gone. Saturday morning, bright and early Saturday morning, he shows up at my door, knocks on the door because the doorbell doesn't ring. And I go to the door and he's standing there. He's got wire in his hand. He's got transformers. He's even got some more doorbells. And he says, I'm ready to fix your damn. Let's go up in the attic and fix it. And I said, all right. So we headed up the attic and had to go up this ladder up and get up in there and all. And, and by the way, a little side note here, a couple, of months, or a couple of weeks before that, maybe about six weeks before that, I had been up there in the attic doing something. I don't know what I was doing, but I was up there doing something, and my son, who was about five years old at the time, was in the backyard. So I'm up there working and doing something in the attic, and, and the attic didn't have a lot of decking at all, so you kind of had to walk on the, on the beams you know, all around, there's all this old insulation up there, which made them a little slippery and all, and, and, and so my son was out in the backyard, and all of a sudden, I hear him screaming, and it was one of those screams like, something's wrong. You know, and so here I am up in the attic, and I got to get back down. So I swing around to go, and when I do, my foot slips off, and it goes through the floor of the attic, which is the ceiling of the living room. My wife and daughter are in the living room, and my leg comes right through the living room. Now, I guess fortunately and unfortunately, I didn't fall the way through because I straddled one of those beams that was right there in in the attic. And we're not even going to go there with all that. I mean, I had a bruise; it went all the way. Up. But anyway, uh, so. That, that's, that's what happened a few weeks before. And I told the church, so, so Ernest knew about it. So here we are going up in the attic, and we get to about the place to where the doorbell is. And it just so happens it's about the place where I went through the roof or the floor there. And so I said Ernest, Ernest, now, Ernest, be careful. This is where I fell through. Ernest was 80 years old. Ernest looked at me, and he says, you're the one that needs to be careful up here, not me. But anyway, so we get over there, and, and he finds the wires that go to the doorbell. And immediately, Ernest noticed that one of the wires has become disconnected. So all he does is take that wire, takes a screwdriver, screws it in, and now my doorbell rings. For two years, my doorbell hadn't worked, and the only problem was there was no power going to the doorbell. Once they hooked the wire back up, the power was there. Ding dong, it rang for the rest of the time that I lived there. Now, I tell you that to tell you this: without the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you're not going to be able to produce these fr- these qualities of the fruit of the Spirit we're going to talk about today. So we're kind of bypassing that. I'm not going to tell you how to do all that. Ephesians said, be filled with the Spirit. So each day we've got to allow the Holy Spirit to fill our lives. Now, He comes into your life as soon as you know Christ. But every day we've got to allow Him to fill us with with the Spirit. And the things that keep the Spirit from our lives are the things we read about in verse 19. Those sins of the flesh... That's what keeps the power of the Spirit from being in our lives to help us to produce the fruit that we're going to talk about. All right, so let's jump right in. Nine of them, we're just going to look at six, okay? Uh, And really, you can break them down kind of into three categories, if you will. The first three are really inward qualities, love, joy, and peace. They're, excuse me, inward qualities that hopefully show up on the outside. Hopefully people see love, joy, and peace in us on the outside. The second set, if you will, the middle three, are all about relationships with others. Really all nine of them are about relationships, but these three especially are about relationships with others. Patience, kindness, and goodness. And finally, the last three relate to people and circumstances. Faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So let's jump in. Let's talk first of all about Love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love is the foundational quality of all of these nine traits or qualities of the fruit of the Spirit. It's no accident, no accident at all that love is listed first. Now, the problem with love in the English language is we only got one word for love. When I say I love Jesus Christ, my Savior and Lord, I use the same word to say I love my wife. Of 32 years I use the same word to say I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches Okay, we use the same word for all those things and that's that's unfortunate Uh, Other languages have different words to describe those things the Greek language that the New Testament was written in is one of those languages. There's at least three different words for love in the Greek language One of them is not found in the New Testament. It's the word eros e-r-o-s. It's where we get our word erotic from It's a sensual kind of love It's the word that we use to describe sexual love. There's only one person you should ever experience that kind of love with, and that is your future spouse, your husband, or your wife. Second word for love is found in the New Testament. It's the word phileo, P-H-I-L-E-O. It is a brotherly love, a friendly kind of love. You say, well, I I love my brother or I love my roommate or my friend. You know, the word Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. But right here in Galatians chapter 5, neither one of those words are used. Instead, it's a word you've probably heard before. If you've been in church, uh, any, you probably have. If you haven't, maybe you had not but that's all right. It's the Greek word agape. A-G-A-P-E. Agape. It means an unconditional love. That's the kind of love that... Paul is talking about here when he says that kind of fruit, that quality should be in your life. An unconditional love for others. In other words, you're saying, I love whether or not I get love back or not. I love whether or not you are lovely or not. Whether you're a lovable person, I still love. That's what agape means. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. An entire chapter all about that kind of love, describing it, all the different traits of it. I don't have time to read it tonight, but write that down and go there sometime and just read about that agape love that God has for us. Now, a couple of misconceptions about love that we have often. Number one is love is only a feeling. A lot of people think that. Love is a feeling. It's a, it's a quiver in my liver. It's an ocean of emotion. You know, I just, I've got this feeling. I'm just I'm in love. You know, I've seen some of you guys acting like that. Uh, From time to time And love is an emotion It does involve emotions Strong emotions sometimes But we've got to understand It's much more than that It's much more than just a feeling And another misconception is That love is uncontrollable Some people think love is uncontrollable In other words I fell in love I I didn't have anything to do with that I I, I just fell in It's like somebody's walking along And all of a sudden they trip And they fall in love that, that's not true. That it doesn't happen that way. You see, Jesus commands us to love. You are to love one another. Jesus would not command us to do something that we cannot control. We can control. You can decide whether or not you love your friend, whether you love your brother, whether you love a particular person, whether you love your parents. You decide. It is a choice that you make. It's not Uncontrollable. So that's what I would say. God would say God would say first of all love is a choice I am choosing to love Now let's kind of go to the married kind of love And I know many of you are thinking about that and maybe you got somebody you think oh this may be the one Just maybe the one and, and you're trying to decide is it or not? Let me just tell you once you do decide that Once you decide this is the one let me just tell you love is a choice now I say that because as a pastor of 20 uh, you know, something years now, many times I've had couples come to my office who are having marriage problems. And he'll look at me and he'll say, I don't love her anymore. Or she'll say, I don't love him anymore. And my response is always the same. <laughs> I just say, hey, we'll just do it. Just choose to. And they'll kinda of look at me funny and what they say is, I don't feel it anymore. He said, they're just looking at love as a feeling. And I'm telling you love, Is a choice. And when you stand at this altar before me or another minister or somewhere else and you make that vow and you say, I take this person for good and for bad, for better, for worse, for richer or poorer, you're saying, I choose to love this person. And choices should never change, especially when it comes to marriage. Now, I'm not preaching on marriage tonight, but I get passionate when I start thinking about marriage. Because marriage is under attack in our country today. The whole institution of marriage is under attack. And I'm just here to tell you, once you make that decision, I'm going to choose this person. You're saying, I choose to love you for the rest of one of our lives until either I'm dead or you're dead. Love is a choice. Secondly, love is a matter of conduct. It's a matter of conduct. It is how I act. First John chapter three, verse 18 says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So love is an action. Paul says this ought to be one of the qualities of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. He's talking about action. Love does something. It acts in some way. And so we say, okay, well, well, how does love act? And, and, and where do we get that answer? Unfortunately, in the United States of America, we get our answer on that so often from Hollywood. Hollywood tells us what love is. Just turn on the TV and watch a television show or go to a movie. And there's all different kinds of ways. Sometimes it's sentimental. Sometimes it's cynical. Most of the time, it's sexual in our day and time. Sometimes it is sentimental. You know, love is never having to say that you're sorry. Well, folks, I'm here to tell you, that's just a bunch of hooky because you're going to have to say you're sorry sometimes. You're going to mess up in a marriage relationship. You're going to mess up in a friendship. So don't just say, oh, it's, if I really love this person, I never have to say I'm sorry. Yes, you do, over and over and over again. Sometimes love is cynical. It's like Tina Turner, you know, what's love got to do with it? Well, it's got everything to do with it. I'll say, but some people are just cynical about love. And then most often Hollywood, it's all about sexual love. They're saying that's what love is. And folks, I'm here to tell you, that's not, that's not what love is. It's a part of married love. Yes, but it's not what love is. Don't let people give you that wrong idea, that wrong definition of love. All right, we got to move on. That's the first one. Love. It's an action. It's a choice. I choose to do that. The second one is joy. Now let me ask you this question. What would it take for you in your life right now for you to be happy? Okay? Think about that for a minute. If my professor called and said I didn't have to take that final, I'd be happy. (laughs) Yeah. You'd be happy, wouldn't it? that's That's what kind of the world says. Happy. Everybody wants to be happy. But think about it. What would you have to do? What would you have to have? What would you have to be In order to be truly happy. You think about relationships. And what kind of relationship would you have to have? In order to be truly, truly happy. Let's just go back to the marriage thing for a minute. You know, some people have the idea that once they get married, that they're going to live happily ever after. And and that somewhat is true, I guess. I'm just here to tell you, it doesn't always work that way. It doesn't always be happy all the time. You know, when you talk about marriage, marriage is all about I'll alter him. You know, there's always some songs in a marriage. But what happens after a while, she begins to say, I'll alter him, okay? That's kind of how it works out, you know, in those marriages sometimes. And, and it begins with saying, okay, you know, this, I have the ideal marriage. That turns into an ordeal, and finally you're looking for a new deal, in marriage. What about the rings? You know, there's the engagement ring, there's the wedding ring, and there's the suffering sometimes that comes in marriages. But it's all about being happy. Don't I have the right to be happy? I've heard that in that office right over there so many times as couples have sat in there and said, I'm not happy in my relationship anymore. Don't I have the right to be happy? Our Declaration of Independence says you have the right to the pursuit of happiness. Right? That's what it says. But folks, I'm here to tell you, There's not one time in this book that God ever tells you to pursue happiness. Not once. You know, the word happy begins with the word hap. And hap is all about luck, happenstance. You know, you might be happy if you're lucky. (laughs) Instead, the Bible says, pursue joy. And there's a huge difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is dependent on your circumstances. You'll be happy in your marriage if your wife does everything you want her to. You'll be happy in your marriage if your husband's always great and wonderful like he was when you dated. But if he's not, you might not be happy for a while. See, happy is all about circumstances. Joy, on the other hand, is all about Jesus Christ. And he never changes. You see the difference? Happiness is on the outside. What happens to me on the outside? Joy is on the inside. That's what matters most about my joy is what happens on the inside with me. And the fact that Jesus Christ died on that cross for my sins and he's given me eternal life, that's what brings joy to us. So we're talking about pursuing that. We're talking about having that in our lives. Just remember, it's not about what happens on the outside. Instead, it's what happens on the inside. And one of the greatest evidences, one of the greatest reasons that we need to have joy is because our names are written in heaven, in the Lamb's book of life. Luke chapter 10, verse 20. says, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, I think sometimes we don't realize and we don't remember, especially when we've been a Christian a long time, we don't remember what we're saved from. Revelation chapter 20 says we're saved from a lake of fire. We're saved from eternal damnation, separation from God for all of eternity. That's what we're saved from. And so often in this life we kind of forget about that. But when we remember it, the joy of the Lord can come into our lives. So love, joy. We're going to skip peace. Okay, we're not going to talk about peace tonight. Uh, peace out. No. Uh, we'll just we'll save that one for another time. Well, let's move to the next one. Patience. Patience. He said we're going to have love, joy, peace, patience. Now we're getting into that second group. It's really about relationship with others. Okay. Let's talk about patience for a minute. How many of you have ever prayed for patience? Seriously. Raise your hand. Have you ever prayed for patience? Okay, hands down. Somebody said, "Be careful about praying for patience, because God might do what it takes in your life to make you a more patient person." And that's really, you know, that's kind of funny, but it's really true. You know, in order to make us patient, God's got to send us through some things in our life that would make us patient. Because the only way to produce patience. It's to go through difficult times. There's actually two different Greek words for patience, okay? The first one is the word hupomone, H-U-P-O-M-O-N-E. And it just literally means what we normally think about patience. To persevere, to remain under, to bear up under trials, okay? That's what that word means. But that's not the one here in Galatians 5. Instead, the one here in Galatians 5 is the word macrothumia. Macro meaning long, thumia meaning heat. In other words, it takes a long time for you to heat You know, anybody who has a very short fuse, (laughs) I mean, it didn't take much, bam, they're mad and angry. Well, that's not patience. Okay. Instead, patience is that even when things come into my life that make me mad, that make me angry, it takes me a long time to get to that point. That's what patience is all about here in Galatians chapter five. Now, I'll be honest with you. When I was your age, I wasn't very patient. I wanted things to happen, bam, right, right then. You know, that, that, that was true with relationships. That was true with, with my career. That was true with school. That was true with everything. I, I wasn't very patient. And now as a 53-year-old, I'm still not the most patient person in the world. But, but I think I've grown a little bit and gotten closer to it. And really, the reason that I can say that today is, and I think the way that I would say to you, the way to, to get patience is to spend time around people who are patient. You know, anger is contagious, is it not? You get around somebody that's screaming and hollering at you, what are you going to do? You're going to scream and holler back, right? It's contagious, but so is patience. You get around somebody who's patient with others, and you'll let it, it'll it'll rub off on you a little bit. Outside of my wife, my best friend is a guy by the name of Joy Florence. Joy Florence was a football coach here in Denton Ryan High School. He's now the athletic director. And Joy and I have been good friends for 15, almost 20 years now. And uh, we go to lunch together usually once a week. And so, you know, we, we don't spend a lot of time. We play golf together, you know, occasionally and all. But through the years, I have learned to be more patient, at least in one area of my life, because of Joy Florence. I remember when we first started uh, kind of going to lunch together and all, he'd come get me. And, and so he'd drive, and, and we'd be driving. He'd be driving his truck, and I'm sitting over there. And he would slow down to let people get in in front of him. And he would stop at a yellow light instead of speeding up to go through. You used to drive me crazy. I'm thinking, why didn't you just speed up, man, and beat the red light? Why did you have to let that guy in, you know, over there? And I never really said it, but I was thinking it the whole time. But I want to be honest with you. You know what happened with me? I began to be a more patient driver. And when somebody would kind of get ready to cut me off or something, I would remember how Joey would respond to that. He just kind of real calmly let them in and go on. Now, my family would tell you I hadn't gotten all the way there yet, but just being around that person who was more patient than me helped me to become more patient. Now, if Joey's family was here, he'd tell you, well, he's not patient in some of these other areas as well. We all need to grow. But I'm just saying, you want to be more patient, spend time around some people who aren't. Get around some people who are more patient than you are watch how they respond to things watch how they don't let little things fire you up and get you angry which uh, you know the bible says bible says be angry and sin not that means to me that you can be angry without sinning but i'll be honest with you it's tough sometimes and very seldom when you're angry with a person is it going to be without sin usually when you're angry at a injustice or a wrong that's when anger is okay but just know anger is contagious. Patience is contagious as well. Proverbs 22, 24 and 25 says, do not make friends with a hot tempered person. Do not associate with one easily angered or you may learn their ways and get yourself enamored. So he's talking about the negative there, but I believe the opposite of that is true. Don't let it happen in your life. Right. The next one, kindness. Kindness. John chapter 13 verse 35 says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. If you want to write something down, write this down. Love in action equals kindness. That's what kindness is. Kindness is love in action. And our greatest example of that, without a doubt, is Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ, when he was here on this earth, showed more kindness, love in action, than anybody who's ever walked the face of this earth. And he told a story one day that maybe illustrates that kindness better than any other. We call it the story of the Good Samaritan. Did you know the word good is not found in Scripture, though? He's just called Samaritan. We've kind of thrown that in there and said, oh, he was good. If you don't know the story, let me just tell you real quick. A man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And if you ever get the chance to go to the Holy Land, and I've been about seven times now, you'll know that Jerusalem is, is high. It's about 4,000 feet elevation. Jericho is at sea level. Okay. So literally he was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And and even today, the roads are very narrow and windy and it's through the mountains and all. And and so this guy's traveling along and some bandits come along and they, they jump him and they beat him up and they take his stuff and even his clothes and, and pretty much leave him there bleeding and, and maybe even half dead. And as the story goes, Jesus was telling this story, a Levite came along Right, that's the guy who worked in the temple and he saw the guy there on the side of the road And he went to the other side of the road to avoid the guy and to go on then a priest came along Obviously the priest works in the temple as well. He sees the guy. He does the same thing but then a samaritan comes along now, let me just tell you samaritan was a uh, Was half breed. Okay, that's kind of the best way to put it. You know, they had uh, Bread you know, they had intermarried with some others and, and and so the jews didn't like them. Okay, let's the bottom line without going into all the details Matter of fact, they wouldn't even associate with him, wouldn't talk to him, didn't want to touch him or anything, didn't like him at all. They're horrible. So that's why Jesus chose to use the Samaritan to talk about this. Said so the Samaritan came along, he saw the man, he went over, he had compassion for him, showed kindness to him, took care of him, paid for his care, and then went on his way. And then Jesus ends the story by asking this Who was the neighbor for that guy? it's pretty obvious, wasn't it? You know, it's kind of funny how they answered the question. They didn't say, the Samaritan was, <laughs> he was talking to Jews. He said, well, the guy that, that showed kindness to him. And that's what kindness is. Two quick things about kindness. Number one, kindness is full of compassion. Kindness is full of compassion. That guy, that Samaritan, he saw the guy there. Now, the priest and Levi saw him too, but he didn't act upon it. Maybe they even had a little compassion for him. By the way, the reason they didn't go over to him, because if he was dead and they touched him, the priest would not be able to perform his duties in the temple. He'd be unclean. So basically what he was saying was, my religious rituals are more important than helping this guy out. Religion is more important to him than helping the guy out. The Samaritan saw he was full of compassion, and then kindness takes action. So kindness is full of compassion, but it takes action too. Not just enough to have a compassionate heart. Feel bad about something. you got to act on it. That's what kindness does. Kindness goes ahead and acts on it. Colossians 3, verse 12 says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. All right, goodness, we're going to skip that one. Let's go on to faithfulness. Faithfulness. We are to be faithful. And Again, our best example of this is God himself. God's the ultimate example of faithfulness to us. Three words kind of characterize God's faithfulness, right? Certain, true, and enduring. Certain, true, and enduring. God is certain. His word, his word is certain. It is truth. It's enduring. You know, there are only two things that are going to last from this life to the next life. Only two things that are on this earth that are going to be in heaven one day. Number one, the word of God. And number two, the souls of men and women. And I'm going to say the word of God. I'm not talking about the book you hold in your hands tonight. I'm talking about the word. The word of salvation. The gospel message. That will endure. So I just remind you, God, his word endures. It's true. It endures. And it's everlasting. Everlasting. It'll always be there. So, all those things about God just show us that uh, uh, the fact that He is faithful. Now, God's telling us all these traits, these nine traits, they're not easy. It's going to be a battle. You're going to be battling Satan and his temptation to sin. And so, Ephesians chapter 6 talks about the battle, it talks about the armor of God. Now, that's a whole other sermon series. But the last piece of armor is the shield of faith. Now, a shield for a soldier in that day and time was about four and a half feet high and about two and a half feet wide. And on the front of it was a, a substance, a leather and, and linen, and it was soaked in a substance so that when the enemy shot arrows, now not just any arrows, but arrows that they would light on the end, so fiery arrows, when it hit that shield, it would extinguish the arrows. Okay? Now, you know, if, if it hit their sword or hit something else, you know, it probably wouldn't hurt them or hit their helmet, but that's, nothing else is going to extinguish it. It took the shield to do it, and he calls it the shield of Faith. We're talking about faithfulness. It is faith that will protect you. Faithfulness that will protect you from Satan's temptations, Satan's fiery arrows that he wants to shoot into your life and mine. And so as we think about going to the battle, we think about faithfulness. All right? Two more. Gentleness, not going to do that one. Self-control, let's do that one. Let's finish with that one. It's no coincidence that love is the first one and self-control is the last one. With love, we have freedom in Christ. With self-control, we have an anchor in Christ. He grounds us. Self-control keeps us where we need to be. Kind of keeps our footing uh, in, in life, so that we don't get knocked over around those things. But I'm going to honest with you, self-control is tough. Self-control is like, like golf. Any golfers in the room, all right? Golf is one of those things that you never get. Ask Tiger Woods, he'll tell you. You don't get golf. You might get a little better at it. You might improve some, but you're never going to get to the point to say, I have conquered golf. You're not going to do it. Same is true of self-control. You're never going to get to the point where you say, I fully have self Control. You know James talks about the tongue. He says, "He who control his tongue can control everything." And the bottom line is, you're not ever going to completely control your tongue. You're going to slip up. You're going to mess up. But we try, and we keep trying, and we keep trying. And with self-control, we keep trying. The word uh, self-control is the Greek word "enkritos," and it means a strength within. We have a strength within, a resolve to have self-control. Now, this last one, unlike the other eight, is neither God word or man word, but properly self word. Self-control is self word. Two things I want to leave with you about self-control. You need to have self-control, first of all, of your mind. And what I mean by that is you control what goes into your mind. You decide what movies you're going to watch. You decide what you're going to look at on the Internet. You decide. And it's all about self-control. Self-control. And guys, and even girls, I'm going to tell you, pornography is one of the strongest and most destructive things in our world today when it comes to self-control. And once you get in it, your self-control will be weakened. Don't let that happen. Just decide right from the start, I'm not going to let Satan win in this area of my life. I'm going to control what goes into my mind. I'm going to decide what goes there. And I would say, secondly, control your mouth. (laughs) Control your mind control your mouth. You know, we can talk about what goes in it. And we won't talk about that today, diet and all that kind of stuff. Let's talk about what comes out of it though. You know, you ever, you ever used an inappropriate word, a curse word or something. And you said, I just don't know where that came from. <laughs> well, let me tell you where it came from. The Bible says what's in our heart is what comes out of our mouth. So if something comes out of your mouth. It began in your heart. It started there. And so that's where self-control comes in. I've got to be in control of what I say, of what comes out of my mouth. Think before you speak. So often we don't. We just kind of say what, we, what, we, what comes to mind. Think before you speak. Always speak the truth. You now I can remember my mom saying that. Honesty is the best policy. said it once. She said it a million times. Stuck with me. Always speak the truth. But always speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. That's what's most important as we think about self-control and the things that, that happen in our lives. All right, anybody's gum still tastes like juicy fruit when it started? Probably no. Yours does? Okay. You're not chewing it very good, huh? <laughs> you know, gum's kind of like that, isn't it? Eventually, it gets dull and it gets old and it's hard. and You got to spit it out and you put in a new fruit piece. And man, here we go again. It tastes great. Burst of juicy fruit flavor. Well, that's kind of how it is with the Holy Spirit. You see, we've got to keep allowing the Holy Spirit to fill us every day of our lives. And when we do, then we will produce the things of the Spirit. Can you say them with me? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness. I think I left a couple out, didn't I? Self-control. That's the last one. I got that one. Nine things that need to be evident in our lives. And as you go home this summer, I hope you will do your best. To let the Holy Spirit empower you to have those qualities in your life every day. If you will, you'll grow in your faith this summer. You'll grow in your relationship with Christ. and When you come back in the fall, you'll be ready to be a warrior for Him on your campus, in your dorm room, in your apartment, wherever it is. And to be a great part of what happens here in Overflow and at first end. Let me pray for you. Thank you for listening to the Overflow podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.